Hello, and welcome to Series 3 of Made at UCL, the podcast. My name is Karis Bradley, and I'm here to share with you UCL's groundbreaking research and its impact on the world. Each month, the Made at UCL team and I will be exploring a research theme and gathering stories from all over the UCL community to try and understand it. In our third episode of this series, we chose Direction for Change as our theme. This is quite a difficult theme to articulate. A lot of the stories we cover on Made at UCL, the podcast, are about change. We talk to lots of academics whose research is changing the world by bringing in new technologies or approaches or ideas. But the stories we have today aren't just about changing how we do things. They speak to fundamental shifts in how we see the world. This month, the team has spoken to researchers who are thinking big and looking to the future and trying to build a whole new way of engaging with it, from equipping the next generation in the fight against climate change to reimagining cities as centres for sustainability, to developing new technologies in a new research environment built on collaboration and innovation. We have three incredible stories of UCL research not only changing the world, but creating the tools that will direct that change. I feel like there has been a lot of change recently. A lot of big changes in the past month and sometimes everything starts to feel quite chaotic, which is why it has been very comforting to hear from people who have a plan, who are thinking about long-term sustainability and how to build for the future. In our first story we hear from Chanju Mwanza, an MA student in Education, Gender and International Development, as she explores a project at the Institute of Education, a new resource hub for teachers to help empower their students in the climate change conversation. When I realized that there was communities in my country that were facing devastating impacts of climate change, that is when I decided that I had to do something about it. When I was about eight years old, I first heard about something called climate change or global warming. Young people feel a sense of disappointment, a devastation and even a burden. change is a global issue that impacts each of our lives, but we can't ignore the fact that it impacts each one of us differently and in unequal measures. The voices we just heard represent a snapshot of global youth who are vocal about climate change, from Vanessa Nakete and Greta Thunberg to Priyanka Lala and the collective voice of young people protesting in the UK. For me, all these voices represent anger, frustration, empathy and passion. I'm currently studying education, gender and international development and so my particular interest is in how these voices and that of the young people that we don't get to hear from can be turned into action through an education that draws from societies around the world that put environmental justice at the heart of learning. But how do these voices and feelings translate into our day-to-day lives? How can young people continue to be empowered to get involved in climate justice without exacerbating feelings of eco-anxiety? And what can we learn from other communities, societies and indigenous knowledge around the world when it comes to teaching about climate justice? I spoke to Dr Alison Kitson about these issues. I'm an Associate Professor at the Institute of Education at UCL and I am the Programme Director for the new 
Centre for Climate Change and Sustainability Education. We launched the centre in April, so uh, we're still quite new. First, I wanted to explore the issue of eco-anxiety. We've seen that young people around the world are united in the fight for climate justice. And earlier this year, the Centre for Climate Change and Sustainability Education commissioned a poll of parents, which revealed that climate change is one of the topics that their children are most likely to talk to them about. It's an issue that's on so many young people's minds. If I don't think the future is worth anything, then I'm not going to have children. If I think it is worth something, I will have children. We are already seeing coastal city flooding, we're already seeing forest fires, we're already seeing flash floods, we're seeing tornadoes. When big ecological disasters happen around the world, I feel a sense of anxiety, I feel a sense of sadness and it, a sense of loss. We do know that eco-anxiety exists. We know from research that's been carried out already that a lot of teachers don't feel prepared and don't feel confident to teach about these issues. There was a piece of research carried out by a great student-led organisation called Teach the Future, which found that about 70% of teachers don't feel they've had much training in this area. Um, and you know, we've held focus groups with teachers who've said you know, they're worried that by teaching these issues, they might exacerbate student anxiety or exacerbate students' misunderstandings. There's this quite interesting tension between, you know, parents saying, look, schools need to be the ones that are leading on this and teaching our children. And then on the other hand, you've got teachers saying, or some teachers saying, I, I don't feel prepared. In a context where social media and the news is saturated with events caused by climate change, it's understandable why there is a very real feeling of eco-anxiety amongst young people. And often, in times of uncertainty, young people will look for answers from trusted adults in their lives. For example, teachers who are seen as a beacon of knowledge. So one solution to help ease the sense of eco-anxiety and ensure that young people have the right information when thinking about climate change is to support teachers to be confident in teaching about these issues. And that's what the new Centre for Climate Change and Sustainability Education aims to do. So the core mission of the centre is to provide all teachers in secondary schools and primary schools, and that's teachers across all subject areas, with a place they can go to access high quality, research informed and free support uh, about embedding climate change and sustainability in their teaching. We're really committed to seeing this as a whole curriculum issue. So you know, geography teachers, science teachers will already touch on issues of climate change and sustainability in their teaching. But we firmly believe that because this is a, a theme that touches all aspects of our lives, right, you can't compartmentalise it as just this is just about geography and this is just about science. So what we wanted to do in the centre was to provide a place that, you know, if you're a fairly new English teacher in a secondary school, there will be something for you. And the resources being produced aren't limited to the online world. The new centre will include not just resources, but also courses and podcasts, a whole suite of products and projects aimed at supporting teachers at all levels of schooling, from primary right through to secondary. And ultimately, of course, it's about helping teachers to support young people. So, you know, the ultimate kind of audience for this, if you like, or consumer of it, or, or however you want to describe it, are young people themselves uh, in primary and secondary schools. 
But in a context where there are growing youth-led movements around these issues, rising feelings of anxiety or worry about climate change, is it fair that young people are taking on the burden of campaigning for climate justice? Are we further burdening young people with responsibilities of a mess that they didn't create? Something that actually another academic at UCL, Helen Chersky, talked about when I spoke to her in the autumn, which was, um, you know, we must be really careful that we don't give the impression to young people that in a sense we're just handing it all over to them for them to fix. Because that's not that's not fair. And actually, as Helen, you know, pointed out really eloquently, there have been some, you know, a lot of very clever people working on this for a long time. And we know that solutions exist. What doesn't exist is is necessarily the will to implement those solutions. That's a really, really important message for children to get. So, you know, the last thing we want to happen as a result of, of our work in the centre is for young people to say not another lesson about climate change or not another lesson about sustainability. So again, you know, that raises issues for us about how we frame all of this and how schools keep track of everything that's happening so that there isn't a kind of overload and that, you know, schools are conscious of the messages that young people are getting over their, their whole kind of lifetime at school. Eco-anxiety is a real concern for the Centre for Climate Change and Sustainability Education. As such, the resources are designed to include and empower young people in the conversation. And this made me think about other areas of inclusivity. I have my own reservations about climate activism sometimes. The way it can privilege Western and affluent voices, the times it's felt out of touch or seen to target the people who are affected by climate change rather than those with the power to make the change. It's in these situations that I think about how we, as a society in the West, can learn from others around the world in how we organise and think about issues like climate change in relation to those around us and to ensure that everyone can be included in the dialogue. For example, the Southern African philosophy of Ubuntu forefronts our moral obligations towards others, including past, present and future generations, as well as our relationship and responsibility to the environment. And that means learning from the very spaces that we occupy. I was interested in whether the centre had considered alternative pedagogical styles as part of its work in reframing the day-to-day relationship that young people have with the nature around them, or, as the saying goes, how nature can be our best teacher. There are, there are indigenous you know, peoples around the world who, who haven't ever really lost that connection with, with nature, and you know, that, that's a whole other uh, sort of really interesting area to explore with young people. I think increasingly we're trying to break down that barrier of human beings and nature. You know, we are part of nature and, you know, how how can that be reflected in what we teach? I'm a historian and we haven't taught school history uh, through an environmental lens very much until now. The other thing, of course, that we're really interested in is not just how we learn, but where we learn. So what is the role of learning outside or, or how can we bring the outside inside if, if, if that's what's available? But how can we actually get kids to learn in a, you know, within nature? So that's going to be a really interesting part of what we do. Reflecting back to my conversation with Alison, this could have been a whole hour long discussion about bringing in indigenous philosophies around the world that focus on education through nature and our responsibilities to the environment. 
As someone who spent their earliest years growing up between Zambia and Cote d'Ivoire, where being outside and immersed in nature was a huge part of my day-to-day life and education, I remember being shocked by how much we were disconnected from the environment around us at school in the UK. And I think for a global issue like climate change, having institutions like this centre presents an opportunity to forefront and learn from the pedagogical methods of other societies that have fostered this strong relationship with nature for centuries. It's an opportunity to disrupt ideas that indigenous knowledge forms from around the world don't fit into our context in the UK. The Centre for Climate Change and Sustainability Education is just at the start of its own journey. It has a mammoth task ahead of it, and progress is being made. The Centre will be launching a big survey for teachers across the country in the autumn term, and its pilot teacher education support package begins with history and geography before rolling out to all subjects. The distinctive contribution of the new centre is that we're aiming to reach all teachers. There will be resources, but our resources will be mediated through some kind of training provision. And it will be flexible training that teachers can engage with. It will be informed by best pedagogy in different subject areas. You know, we're really confident that we can do that. And as for young people themselves... So we're already talking to young people in focus groups. Um, We're setting up a youth panel in the autumn and, you know, we will do our absolute best to try and get as representative a group as possible from across the country. I mean, actually, the, the voice of teachers and young people are going to be really critical to what we do. My hope is that through centering young people's perspectives, the anger, frustration, empathy and passion that young people can feel about climate injustice can be transformed into action for a future where climate justice and activism is inclusive and responsive to the needs of people all over the world. Speaking of large-scale projects that provide everything you need to know to create a more sustainable future, up next is Katie Davies, a final year student studying history, politics and economics, with a story about a new and colourful way to explore cities. Buildings and building construction are responsible for around 40% of global energy use. In a city as vast and complex as London, How do we even begin to measure the energy being produced by buildings, let alone consider the ways to reduce it? Imagine if we had an open database which provides information on the building stock so that anybody who's involved in trying to improve the efficiency of the stock, its quality, its sustainability or resilience can access data. This is Polly Hudson, a senior research fellow at the Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis at UCL and the Alan Turing Institute. Polly leads the Colouring Cities project, which sets to address the lack of data available on buildings in order to aid sustainability by answering questions such as What kind of buildings have we got where? You know, how old are they? How tall are they? And we also need to know how long they've lasted. We need to look at how adaptable they are, how likely they are to to last a long time. Um, We need to look at their potential for retrofit. We can't move forward in a way that's sustainable because it's like, you know, Unless you can actually work out how many of what you've got and where are they, it's very actually very difficult to work out, to answer questions like what's going to be happening in the future, because you don't even know what you've got in the first place. In order to answer such big questions, Polly and her team have taken a fully multidisciplinary approach. 
And we're trying to create a visual system that links science, humanities and the arts. This combination is incredibly powerful. So when you start to visualise and you work with colour specialists and you graphic designers and then you work with people in the humanities who understand the dynamics of cities, you know, and then you combine that with scientists who understand, you know, the energy efficiency or the structural side, you know, engineering guys or whatever. The result is fantastic. A colour-coded map of London that visually presents the data gathered, creating a knowledge base that will help facilitate sustainable urban development. For me, the best part is that anyone can get involved and help develop the open database by adding in information. As such, the map acts as a giant coloured jigsaw puzzle that is gradually pieced together with each piece of data adding, colouring the buildings. A project of this scale is only possible through collaboration and Polly and her team have worked on an international scale. We're looking now to work across 10 countries. Anybody can use our code. Our stuff is free, and this is absolutely critical for allowing us to work with other countries. But basically, the countries take the code and then they apply it in their own context. I couldn't help but notice that while the project is centred around wholly physical spaces, it is, ironically, online and remote collaboration that's been vital to the project. We couldn't obviously work across countries in this way without, you know, working on Teams and Zoom and stuff like that. Our project really accelerated during COVID. And, and we noticed that many people were wanting to collaborate more. It's absolutely critical to sit down over a coffee, if you can, with people, because the physical contact you have in a one-to-one -one discussion is, is very different from online. Founded in 2016, the Colouring Cities project has been going on for seven years. Despite the length of the project, Polly's enthusiasm and passion for the project shone through. So what I wanted to find out was how Polly has kept engaged with the project, given its length. I feel we've only just started. I've always been kind of fascinated how very simple structures can be built on to produce very sort of, you know, complex systems or or complex databases or whatever it might be. The periodic table always fascinated me because it was a, a graphic, you know, a visual, very clear graphic in which all these elements, you know, the attribute were, were ordered, you know, in, in a particular way, but where at the time electrons hadn't even been identified. And yet the way they were ordered could predict the number of the electrons in the shell. To me, this metaphor emulated the Colouring Cities project perfectly, as this concept of turning something incredibly complicated into something simplistic is at its centre. And that's my interest. Our project is there to facilitate other things. Good things take a long time to, to build, you know, and, and simple things take a long time to make. As simple as Polly claims the Colouring Cities project is, it's creating big changes. Nothing ever stays the same. It gives great hope because if, it's, if you've got a positive situation, you can make it even better. And if you have a negative situation, you know it's never going to last. It's never always going to be the same. Do you know what I mean? You can, you're always going to be moving. And you have to be able in academia to welcome that. You have to be able to be excited by that. To me, 
The Colouring Cities project encompasses everything positive about change. It has demonstrated that with the right collaboration, permanent, high-quality, low-cost, open databases on buildings can be easily and cheaply built and maintained for cities and countries. The Colouring Cities project is a fantastic knowledge base that will ultimately facilitate future sustainable urban development. The Colouring Cities project is an exceptional piece of research. However, its collaborative and innovative approach is one that we see across UCL and one that is built into the new UCL campus in East London. To learn more about UCL East and one of the departments that will be moving there in the autumn, Ariano Razavi, a second year philosophy student, spoke to two people involved in the Advanced Propulsion Lab, which is a global centre of excellence dedicated to the decarbonisation of the transport sector, specialising in battery and fuel cell electric vehicles. UCL is really paving the way in terms of sustainable energy, especially in the use of hydrogen. But what does that actually mean? And what does the future of sustainable energy look like? I heard about this UCL project from my brother, who is a high school student, and knows that while I am very interested in sustainability, I don't really have enough background knowledge to know what innovation is happening in the field. So I was especially excited to sit down with Dr. Alex Retti and Robin Radfall to hear more about hydrogen as a source of energy. Hi, my name is Robin Ramphill. I work for the Electrochemical Innovation Lab, but more specifically for the Chemical Engineering Department as well. I'm a project integrator for hydrogen and I work on the UCL Hydrogen Innovation Network project. And I'm Alex Reddy. Uh, I'm an assistant professor in chemical engineering uh, here at UCL. So my research area at UCL, I do research and teaching on sustainable technologies, and especially those concerned with batteries and with hydrogen. And with Robin and uh, colleagues from mechanical and chemical engineering here at UCL, uh, I'm leading the Hydrogen Innovation Network. And just like Robin, I'm heavily involved in the Electrochemical Innovation Lab and the Advanced Repulsion Lab, which is upcoming at UCL East. What are you working on in terms of hydrogen? How can it how can it be used? I would say hydrogen plays a pretty unique role uh, in the various sort of sustainable technologies that that we're trying to to bring in and uh, make widespread. But also, you know, we see it playing a really big role in sort of heavier transport. So things like, you know, freight, things like maybe construction and, and large vehicles like that. But uniquely, hydrogen can also fit right into industrial production of chemicals uh, and can be used, for example, in uh, green steel making, which would just be really hard to decarbonize any other way. We want to get to, net, to meet net zero. So, you know, we're trying to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. And that's where uh, hydrogen comes in as a big player, a key player, along with batteries and other forms of electrification. For example, I use a UCL car, a Toyota Mirai, and it uses hydrogen and emits zero emissions. So there's no pollution, pollution within the atmosphere. It's, it's just liquid that comes out water uh, at the end. That's all so exciting to hear. So um, considering it might be our future, what is it like driving a hydrogen car? 
you really don't notice that you're uh, you know driving a sort of a hydrogen vehicle until you go to fill it up, which is you know really really straightforward once you get to to the refilling station. Yeah, it's brilliant because even on a dashboard you can see that when you're using hydrogen and when you're using the battery and fuel cells, it gives you a reading, a live reading of every time you press the pedals or when you release the pedals. And like Alex said, it drives just like a normal electric car and fueling it up is exactly like a normal car as you would right now. It just, you know, filling it from using a pump that goes into to the tank. And unlike electric vehicles, it only takes about five minutes to actually fuel up. I've always considered things like hydrogen cars to be the stuff of science fiction. They're a nice idea, but will never really be real. However, it's starting to look like they might actually be the future of transport. I think it has a, has a role to play uh, and ultimately uh, we'll have a portfolio of technologies that, that help us, you know, move towards sustainable technologies in every sector. I mean, on the roads already, we can see electric vehicles. You know, we're just walking around London, battery electric vehicles are, are really winning the day when it comes to um, automotive transport. And so I think it'd be really probably just foolish on my part to, to bet against that at this point. There's <laughs> a pretty critical mass uh, behind that. But hydrogen, like I said, plays a different role. So, you know, in terms of heavier vehicles uh, um, and for things like marine uh, and for these chemical processes that I mentioned, for residential heating, I mean, these are, these are things where, where hydrogen can really make a difference. So we know there are other sustainable energy options, but hydrogen seems to play a unique role. Why is it so special? Yeah, you know, most abundant element in the universe, right? It's been around forever. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's very light. You know, it's uh, it has a lot of advantages when it comes to, to an, as an energy carrier. We've had such a long, um, you know, decades, I would say, maybe even longer than that, uh, of research into hydrogen technologies, things like fuel cells, things like electrolyzers that can produce hydrogen. So yeah, it's, it's sort of its abundance uh, and then some of its key chemical characteristics make it really attractive for things like transport, but, but also these other applications. The war with Russia and Ukraine has given more impetus and more urgency that we need to um, move away from fossil fuels and reduce our reliance on other countries as well in terms of getting energy. Where most countries or some countries, as a matter of fact, have access to gas and oil with hydrogen is everywhere. Every country has a level playing field now to harvest or produce hydrogen and be able to trade hydrogen in the future. So hydrogen is the future, but there is still a lot of work to be done in this area. And that's what makes Alex and Robin's work so vital. There's another really exciting part of this project, and that's that it's in the process of moving to a brand new UCL campus in East London opening its doors for the first time this coming academic year. I asked Alex and Robin what they're most excited for in the move and how it'll lend itself to their research. East London allows us to do things that you just can't do in a central Bloomsbury campus, especially because we're really packed to the rafters here sort of as it is. So the UCL East vision is incredibly exciting and it's there, the various buildings and various sort of things that there are, are coming online you know, as we speak. The thing that UCL East, I think, really is, uh, is sort of unique in is that it'll give us you know, our own roads, that we have our own canal to some extent, and we'll have our own airspace as well, right? So, I mean, in terms of being a living lab where you know, we'll really be looking at the next generation of propulsion technologies and, and sustainable technologies, I, I just can't think of anywhere better.
And what UCL is bringing as well is a completely new level of inclusivity to um, the East Bank. We are talking technology, innovation, cutting edge research at scale. UCL East is bringing life to the East Bank by, you know, it's widening its reach, it's, it's being more engaging, connecting with local businesses, schools and community. Is connecting the whole of London and further out. So um, we're all very excited in what's going to be happening there um, over the next year. You know, we we do a lot of great science uh, at UCL, but ultimately, you know, usually we're looking at small scale, maybe uh, atomistic things. You know, we can't drive a vehicle into the lab and test it, but we will be able to do that at UCL East, and that that brings. Uh, sort of other people into the conversation that maybe wouldn't have been so, so involved in the past. So, you know, big uh, industrial consortium, you know, we're already very industry facing as it is, but this will be at a different level uh, in terms of uh, students interacting with people from industry, working on industry projects, as well as government, you know. So I think, yeah, bringing all these things together is something that, that UCLA can really uniquely do. And uh, I, I am, I'm jealous of our students, to be honest. I mean, I, I don't, yeah, the sort of you know, networks that can be built and the kind of projects that they're going to be able to, to work on uh, is really unparalleled. Amazing. So what's next? We would love to have the opportunity to continue with this. I mean, the hydrogen space and the whole production and generating hydrogen, including the infrastructure, is a 20, 30, 40 year project uh, globally. So we want to be there at the forefront um, leading on this as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, energy is the, one of the big problems of our time. You know, this is uh, it's no hyperbole, really, in, in that statement. And yeah, I think it's incredibly important to work on. It's interesting to work on. And yeah, come to UCL East and uh, get your MSc and, uh, and get started, I say. It seems that both in the long term with the widespread use of hydrogen and in the short term with new opportunities at UCL East, there's a lot to be excited about. One day, we might live in a world that runs on clean hydrogen energy, and we might get there because of a generation of climate activists who have the resources they needed to advocate for themselves and our planet. One day, we might revolutionise the cities we live in, and we'll be able to do that because of a simple idea that let us understand their environmental impact. One day, the world might look completely different, and the direction of that change is being set by research here at UCL. Thank you for listening to the third episode of season three. We'll be back next month with more stories from the UCL community. In the meantime, if you want further information on any of the projects featured in today's episode, you can check the show notes for links, pictures and more. You have been listening to Made at UCL, the podcast. To listen to previous episodes or find out more about life at UCL, visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash made dash at dash UCL or subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. This episode was presented by myself, Karis Bradley, with stories from Chanji Mwanza, Katie Davies and Ariana Razavi. It was produced by Hallie McCarthy with support from UCL and featured theme music from the Blue Dot Sessions. For a full list of audio credits, please see the show notes. Special thanks to Alison, Polly, Alex and Robin for sharing their research with us. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone. See you next month.